Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. My next guest, Dr. Amy Rothenberg, is a homeopath and naturopathic physician who's practiced since 1986. In 2017, Amy was awarded with the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, Physician of the Year, and she's currently president of the Massachusetts Society of Naturopathic Doctors. Amy has also recently written a book, You Finished Treatment, Now What? A Field Guide for Cancer Survivors. Amy is a cancer survivor herself, and in 2014, after her diagnosis, she went through her treatments, receiving care at a renowned teaching hospital with a naturopathic medical team by her side. Amy believes that people have the power to address their situation when they don't feel well in general, and in particular for cancer survivors who have ongoing symptoms from conventional cancer care. Hey, Amy, I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have been in this field of medicine for a long time. So I want to know this. What was it that led you to this career? Oh, well, I love that question. And I think there are so many naturopathic doctors practicing these days, and everybody came to this profession for different reasons. For me, I was uh, a kid, and I kind of wanted to be a doctor, one of those little kids who just always wanted to be a doctor. But the events of my life, when I was 12, my father had a heart attack in his sleep and passed away. And a couple of years later, my mother died from breast cancer. So the conventional medical world didn't really have much to offer them. Um, Things have changed a lot since then. There are much better approaches for treating people that are at risk for cardiovascular disease, but this was 1972. And my dad was, you know, stressed, overweight, smoked, uh, probably more of a typical American diet. And there was really no preventive care for him. And my mom probably died from the cancer treatments more than the cancer itself. So I got a bit disillusioned with the whole field of medicine and went in other directions during my undergraduate um, years, but I was always drawn to biology. I, I tried to get into other things, but I kept being drawn back to the anatomy and physiology classes, ornithology, plant botany, uh, just all kinds of things in the the biological world. And I had the privilege of attending a college in Ohio called Antioch College, which was one of the first schools uh, starting in the late 1800s to offer a co-op program. So you would take some classes, but you would also have jobs for three or six months intermittent with your classes. And one of the jobs that I had quite early on in my undergraduate training was in Portland, Oregon at the University of Health Sciences Center. The job was not that interesting, but I happened to fall into a house where there were three naturopathic medical students living. I was living in a a group house with them in Southeast Portland. And as soon as I met them, like within a few hours, I was like, oh my, because I didn't ever, had never heard of that profession. There was no internet, of course, at that time, and there was no real advertising for naturopathic medicine in anything that I had ever seen or for the school. Uh, There was only one school at the time. So 
when I met them, you know, I was in my uh, late teens and I just was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly the right profession for me. I was already into natural kind of lifestyle. I was a vegetarian. I was a runner. I did yoga. I, um, I, and this medicine matched my lifestyle in many ways and also brought together my really deep love of biology and the human, the way the human body works in, in health as well as in illness. And so when I was very young, I charted my path to go back, go back to college, finish my prerequisites, attend naturopathic school. Um, I graduated when I was 26 and I have been practicing ever since. Wow. Oh my gosh. That is just incredible. Like it's kind of sounds like you always kind of had that in you from childhood, like that pull. And I guess the events that took place in your life that just the, the stars aligned and you just kind of found the place where, where you thrive. Because one thing I want to, um, touch on too, is you've been in this field for a long time. And so sometimes I think we find our way into a field and we love and are passionate and lit up about it. And then sometimes there's, you know, a fork in the road and we try something else. And I don't know, I guess there are a lot of people that are in the same career that they've been in for a long time and are passionate about. Um, maybe less you hear about it today. There's pockets of time here and there. And then I feel like there's people that are in a particular career for a long time, but they're not still fired up and passionate about it. They just do it because they've always done it. But from when I first met you and talked to you, um, just like seeing you now, it's just, it's just so evident that you are still so, passionate and fired up about this field that you're in. So I just think it's, I mean, I think you're you're bringing up some super important points. I do feel like now um, with the generation of people in their twenties, thirties, even forties, there's much more acceptance of doing something for a while and then branching out and taking it in a different direction or pivoting entirely into something new in the generations before me, it was very typical, first of all, for only men to be working outside the home um, largely and having one job, you you know, for 40 years and you retire, you get your nice pin or whatever, you know, golf clubs or whatever, and you're done. I think there's less and less of that and the, and the freedom that that allows and the capacity for people to, stay curious and explore other options, I think is really for the benefit of of a lot of people. There are still many people who are working low wage jobs that they're not particularly inspired about. Um, I'm certainly aware of that. But for me personally, I think there's so many elements to being a naturopathic doctor that I took advantage of. So we have the patient care part of things. And then I, right from the beginning, because one of the things that I tried to get more into when I was being pulled back into biology was journalism and writing in general. So right from the get-go, I started writing. I had very little knowledge or experience, and um, but you could always write up a patient story. And, and that was something that I found very helpful for sharing knowledge and information about natural medicine approaches to common winter ailments or common acute problems that arise in children or um preventive care for the big three, heart disease, cancer, diabetes. And so I, there, I was able to do some writing. And then I also have taught a lot at various kinds of, um, for various kinds of audiences from colleagues to naturopathic students, 
but also to medical colleagues and other people in allied health, and then in a totally different direction to, to the community and, and the public, because the public is very interested in health. There's no amount of information that uh, people are not gonna wanna have if it might Im impact their health. Um, and for me, learning, learning all of that and experiencing all of that, I think each one informed and impacted the others. So when you're teaching, it, and you know you're gonna be teaching about something, when you're sitting with a patient the previous week around the same topic, it hones your actual clinical work with your patients. And if I know I'm gonna be writing about something while I'm teaching, I'm thinking about, you know, what is the best way to really communicate this idea? What's going to resonate with people? What are people gonna be able to take in? Learning how to pace myself and not try to give all the information in one breath, because that never works. So having a career that spanned clinical practice, writing and teaching for me, I think it helped me not burn out in any three of those areas. Uh, and I also had income from all three areas. So I didn't have to overwork. And I would say for me, overwork in the clinical setting would be a place that many providers across all of medicine, uh, especially during COVID are, are burned out and are having to work so hard and such long hours. Um, I, I recently had my uh, annual scans related to the cancer I had in, in 2014. And I was, I'd like to chat up the, the mostly gals working in these settings, well, not always women, but usually. And I was asking them about, you know, how's the workload been? And they are so understaffed that they were all doing double shifts. They were eight hour shifts and they were doing 16 hours in a day, which I mean, can't possibly be healthy for them. Of course, not even to mention how that might lead to medical error. Um, so we're, we're in a bit of a bind. Uh, I know you're in Canada, we're in, in the States, maybe it's better in Canada, but a lot of burnout going around. So I've also been blessed to have a partner who's very supportive and encouraging. And we raised three beautiful children. And I took a lot of time off when my kids were little. I wanted to raise my own family and I felt supported in, in that decision. And of course, never regret a minute of that. And that also informed my practice and my writing and my teaching, being a mother um, and, and vice versa. So, yeah. Oh my gosh. All of that's just so beautiful. There's so much in that. Um, so, okay. I just want to go here first for the listeners. So for someone who maybe isn't aware of like, what is a naturopathic approach um, compared to what would it be called? What's the opposite of that? Not the opposite. Uh, well, we sometimes just use the term conventional medicine. Some people use the term allopathic medicine, uh, the medical paradigm. There's just lots of ways you can say it. None of them disparaging, you know, there it's all, there's a time and a place for every kind of medicine I feel. Yes. And you actually experienced this through your, um, cancer journey and, and treatment. So yes. what, what are the, like the main differences between, yeah. Well, I think in conventional medicine, there's a big emphasis on treating symptoms and giving people relief from the symptoms that they have. I think that's pretty much uh, the, the name of the game. That's often with medications. Uh, sometimes it's with other recommendations, but it often leans into and emphasizes various medications. And that's why we have a bit of an epidemic of what is called polypharmacy, where people are taking more than one medicine at a time. Um, if you look at people over the age of 60, 40% uh, of them are taking at least one drug. 
and another 20% are taking more than five. So, I mean, there's just an enormous amount of over-prescribing. And sometimes we have what's called the prescribing cascade, where you have an illness, take a medication, it helps with that illness, but then you get another side effect of the medication for which you take another drug. This is called the prescribing cascade. In terms of naturopathic medicine, I would say the key features of naturopathic medicine are trying to identify the root cause of a person's problem and trying to work at the root cause, not only giving symptom relief. Naturopathic doctors follow a wonderful um, philosophical approach called the therapeutic order, which I can talk about if you want in a little while. But the other main philosophical tenets are to treat the whole person. So a person comes in with very bad, let's say, uh, tendinitis, you know, in their shoulder or something like that. Yes, we're going to look at the shoulder and address the shoulder, but we're going to try to understand that inflammation in the context of the rest of the person. That includes their whole, you know, their digestion, their urination, their sleep, their breathing, their heart, all that. But it also includes their psycho-emotional makeup as well as their cognitive capacities. So rarely am I only treating like, you know, this sore shoulder. I'm going to look at it in, in the context of the whole person. Another philosophical tenet that's super important to naturopathic doctors is the idea of the doctor as teacher. So I can help somebody, but mostly I'm trying to help them help themselves by giving them accurate, timely, appropriate information at, in the right amounts relevant to their care with always an eye to prevention when we can uh, and treatment when we, when we need to. Um, and then the other very important part of naturopathic medicine has to do with stimulating the body's inherent healing capacity. There's a real, um, it's, it's, now it can be described much more through the biology and the biochemical reactions and the immune system's capacity and all of that. But for naturopathic doctors, the idea that there is a healing power within each of us, it's a, it's a you know, whatever you believe in, God-given, nature-given, that we just need to find, you know, give people access to their own, do the things we need to do to support and encourage it, and then kind of get out of the way. So that healing power of nature is a big part of what we do. It also includes the healing power of nature on, on the outside. You know, very big proponents of having people spend more time in the out of doors, forest bathing, whatever you want to call that. And also to tap into natural medicine substances that are derived from natural sources. Now, there are a lot of drugs, including some cancer drugs that are derived from botanical medicines, but leaning into the healing power of food, you know you are what you eat, absolutely true, uh, herbal medicine, the use of water, hydrotherapy, and there are other tools that we use, but the tools are applied according to this philosophical um, umbrella. Okay. So would you say then, um, I guess, treatment, if you're getting naturopathic treatment that um, compared to conventional, that it's kind of like a deeper or like maybe a more in depth or a longer process? Like it seems yeah, I mean, like- I would say, absolutely. I would say that the average visit with a naturopathic doctor for an initial intake, let's say with a patient who has some kind of chronic complaint, whether it's irritable bowel syndrome, PMS, eczema, allergies, uh, hypertension, you name it. The initial intakes are usually an hour and a half, hour to an hour and a half, which is 
a little bit longer than you usually get with your primary care doctor. Specialists, you can sometimes get a, a nice long visit in the conventional medical world, but that's the typical length of time in terms of the meeting. And then the arc of when and how we're seeing improvement with patients. You know, part of the problem is that many people, I believe in our times, they're very uncomfortable feeling uncomfortable and they want quick, uh, solutions to their healthcare problems. But for many of them, they didn't get to the healthcare problem they had in a quick way. It was years and years. You know, what, what, what are we? We are a product of our genetic inheritance, our environmental exposures, both those we can control and those we can't, our family dynamics, you know, choices we've made along the way related to recreational drug use, alcohol use, risk-taking behaviors, diet, of course, uh, relationship things. So we're a product of all of this. And so if a person comes to me and they have, let's say very commonly metabolic syndrome, hypertension, high cholesterol, uh, and high blood pressure, um, oh, hypertension is high blood pressure, excuse me, uh, high cholesterol and, and belly fat uh, and high blood sugar called metabolic syndrome, like that is not something that's going to get better overnight. They didn't get there overnight and we're gonna give ourselves gradual, hopefully permanent, enduring changes that will lead to a reversal of, of that diagnosis. And there are many, many chronic diseases, upwards of 80% of chronic diseases are lifestyle influenced. So when we, and so the, I front load my visits with patients talking about this. I'm like, like, like you know, you're coming in fully loaded here. We're gonna break it down and we're gonna give, find the things that are, where do we have the most leverage with a person at that point in time. And what are they willing to do? I have mm -hmm. literally had people say to me, I do not want to give up salt. I'd rather just take my blood pressure medicine. So, you know, then that's a hard stop. Okay. I have to work with that. I can work with that. Um, and similarly for cancer survivors, many of them have symptoms related to their cancer care and left over. And now it's four months later or four years later, and they are still struggling with those things. And Many of the cancer patients that I've worked with feel like, well, you know, I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, I can live with this. And, you know, I always say we're all lucky to be alive and we can probably have some impact here. So the other thing that's important for me is that it's not that drugs are the enemy. I take several personally because of the nature of my illness, but I feel that for side effects of drugs, most entirely are dose dependent. So sometimes people can take the same drug, but get enough bang for the buck and take less of it under the guidance of the prescribing physician. They're not doing this on their own and therefore have less side effects. So there's lots of conversations to have. And I think one of the pieces of improvement in my own practice, I think over these many decades is learning to, again, sort of pace myself and learn how to best prioritize what the patient would be willing to do, able to do, capable to remember, afford, there's many variables that go into it. I could write up a beautiful two-page plan that covers every area and the person looks at it, they're so overwhelmed, they don't do any of it. Right. Yes. I feel like that's so important that you brought that up is the pacing of it, because like you said, it, we didn't get to where we were overnight. So it's going to take, you know, there's no magic fix or magic pill that we all kind of want, right? That instant um, switch. So it's going to take some time and switching your daily habits and what you're willing to 
change in your life to get the desired results. So I'm glad you brought that up before we get into like the cancer. Um, what are some things that people can do, uh, for preventative, um, prevention of some of the, the main illnesses that you see on a day-to-day basis? What are some, I don't know. And I, I have a, um, a caveat here, which is that a lot of the things that I can speak about on that question are the same said things that I would speak about with cancer survivors. Um, the number one thing I would say is regular exercise. Uh, it sounds like so basic and doesn't everybody know that already? And haven't we proved it? And hasn't the research shown it? Yes, yes. And yes, but that is not necessarily enough to get people moving. And I, I often have a good laugh with my patients, you know, when I'm trying to get them started with exercise and for most people, the lowest hanging fruit there is walking, which is fine, a fine exercise. And I want people to do some consciousness raising, like how many steps do you actually take in a day. And now most people have a pedometer on their phone, you know, and can do that. And I say to them, like, you know, if, if, you, if you're getting like four or 600 steps a day, and remember the goal is like more like eight to 10,000. Um, initially they were saying 12,000, they, 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 they rolled that back and people get quite a, enough benefit from about 8,000 steps a day. Um, and you don't, but if you're only getting like four or 500 and like most of them are between the couch and the refrigerator, you know, we have a problem. So I will brainstorm with patients around, you know, did you ever exercise? Was there anything you ever liked? And might we be able to, you know, go back to that and really giving people attainable uh, goals, not going to tell somebody to start walking 8,000 steps a day. It'll never happen. But if they do some consciousness raising for a week or two, and they're walking around 600, 700, I'll say, let's see if you can get 2000 steps a day. Be sure you have well-fitting shoes. If you have medical conditions that might, uh, inhibit the capacity for you to walk, be sure you get, you're cleared for that. Uh, I just can't say enough. And I do think about exercise in three areas. There's aerobic, there's resistance training, and then there's something that's stretching. And depending on your family history and your medical history, one might be more important than the other. So for instance, um, in a person who is taking an estrogen blocker, so a breast cancer survivor that had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, they are more at risk for osteoporosis. So the weight bearing resistance training for them is very important, even though the aerobic is also somewhat weight bearing. So things like that, just understanding the context again, context, everything's context dependent, and we have to lean into our understanding of the context. Um, the number two thing I would say for most people related to chronic disease in general, um, especially the big three, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, is eating an anti-inflammatory diet. So what is an anti-inflammatory diet? Anti-inflammatory diet basically means sidestepping the refined sugars all the white foods that everybody loves, cookies, cake, candy, all that kind of jazz, um, not over drinking. Uh, over drinking is not good for people. That, what does that mean in terms of real day-to-day uh, in, imbibing? That's one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men. Now, I'm not encouraging that everybody do that, but I'm just saying more than that would be considered excessive, as would any amount ever of binge drinking. So um, that's just a kind of benchmark to think about. And then what do, do you eat? The main things to eat are fruits and vegetables, lean proteins, including especially poultry, eggs, uh, any of the, any fish, of course, very, very healthy. And then nuts and seeds and healthy oils. And then complex carbohydrates, grains that are 
give you enough fiber to work through, to act as prebiotics in your system. So things like brown rice, quinoa, um, uh, grains like that, that are considered whole grains. Um, millet is, is another one, barley. That's the second thing, anti-inflammatory diet. And when I have a person who's eating what is considered a standard American diet, basically bad, a lot of fast food, a lot of fried food, a lot of processed meats, those are all things that have been declared, you know, carcinogenic for one, and just loaded, loaded, loaded with salt for two, uh, the processed meats. So we try to steer people away from those. But for a lot of people, I, I can't just tell them, you know, don't eat this, don't eat this, don't eat this. I, I basically, a lot of times my opening salvo is, I'd like you to add one green salad a day. And that's it. That's the only change we're going to make. Uh, and, I, and I'll teach people like, what do I mean by a salad? I mean like five or six different vegetables and some kind of lean protein on there. Hard boiled egg, handful of garbanzo beans, a handful of almonds, you know, something with is also protein. And you want to use some healthy fats with on that, with you know, good quality olive oil or good quality dressing without hydrogenated fats. So anti-inflammatory diet is the second thing. The third thing I would say is working on the microbiome, which is everything that exists between your clavicles and your hip bones, everything in there. That's not a bone, a joint, an organ, uh, a ligament, et cetera. And you want to, we're, we're made up of multitudes, you know? So all the different bugs that make up our microbiome help our digestive process, help is where the immune system arises from the gut, about 80% of it. And then we also have the impact of the gut microbiome on the mood and on cognition. So it's very central. And you know, what are the main things that knock the microbiome out of whack? Antibiotics, overuse of antibiotics. They're indicated sometimes for sure, but overuse of antibiotics. Eating foods to which you are allergic or sensitive can make your microbiome less robust and diverse. Um, and there are certain other medications and lifestyle things that can do that. So we try to work on the microbiome at, uh, from lots of different angles by taking a probiotics, perhaps eating fermented and cultured foods, uh, not being so aggressive with washing everything. I think our all the whole emphasis on cleanliness might well be uh, not, not have been the best idea. So for instance, if I, uh, we are very blessed, belong to a local community supported agriculture project where each week we pick up our share of food about seven, eight months a year. Uh, and I'll, I'll get there, you know, you know, you pay once at the beginning and you, you, you go and you pick up your share. I will get carrots that have been washed somewhat over there. I will not peel them and I will not overly scrub them. I want a little bit of that, that dirt. And as we've moved from an agrarian society to a more of an urban society, this has also caused the denigration in general you know, across populations. Mm. Um, another thing that I would always encourage people to do is to really take an honest look at the toxin load that they are living in and with, both related to the foods that they eat and other things they consume, personal care products, cleaning products in the home, products related to arts and crafts, and to do whatever we can to lower the toxic load, uh, because we know that the toxins can be hormone disruptors, can be inflammatory, and uh, it, it's hard to do. And I, I always say, you know, don't do it wholesale. Don't go home and throw everything out. Just when you buy something, put that one to the side. When you buy a new one, try to get unscented, try to get less, this is the chemical buildup in our systems, in our environment, including our internal environment is real. And it's, it's definitely having an effect on people.
Mm-hmm. I, I would throw into that category two things. One is not only do we try to lower the exposure to toxins, we try to enhance the inborn capacity for ridding ourselves of both the common metabolites of digestion, you know, through having bowel movement, urinating, et cetera, and also to rid ourselves of more external toxins by staying well hydrated, trying to sweat once in a while. That's a great way that we get rid of toxins. Uh, doing deep breathing once in a while, that's another way we get rid of, you know, uh, carbon monoxide. So things like that, where we are ensuring that we call this in naturopathic medicine, the emunctory systems, those are the ones that help us get rid of the naturally forming toxins as well as external ones. So keeping a clear channel to those, um, not using antiperspirant, antiperspirant, very bad idea. You can use deodorant if you need to, but antiperspirant, you, you want to sweat. Um, and I would also adjacently put in the other kind of toxins that people are experiencing related to the more psycho-emotional realm. So taking an honest look at the friendships, you know, at the family relationships, and are there some people that just really stress you out? And is there a way to shift the nature of the relationship so it's less stressful? Or sometimes, you know, with some friends, maybe that friendship needs some parentheses around it, we're gonna take a break. Um, and learn that we have to take care of ourselves first. And if we have very toxic people in our lives, that's gonna impact our physical health as well as our emotional and cognitive health. Lastly, I think the, the holy grail is adequate and um, adequate and deep sleep. And we have, we are living in what I would consider an epidemic of insomnia, starting from very little people all the way up through very old people and everybody in between. I think there's a lot of good reasons for it. It's a stressful world right now. Um, I think that people have too much screen time and that's not helping. We circle back around to not enough exercise early in the day. Um, And then I think we also loop back in that idea of nobody's comfortable being uncomfortable. So people, if they're having trouble sleeping, they immediately wanna go to the doctor and get some trazodone or some Ativan or some other sleeping agent which I honestly believe there is a time and a place for those things. You know, you just lost a loved one. You heard very bad news. You know, people sometimes need a a hand like that. We're just going to numb them out, so to speak, and let them just drift off. But the quality of sleep with these kinds of things, benzodiazepines, not great. And they also have been shown to have long-term side effects related to cognitive decline and a number of other very scary things. So um, I'm not interested in like getting people off drugs, but if somebody comes to me and they want to get off a medication because they don't feel as sharp or they don't feel as creative or they feel sort of stunted, whether it's antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicine, sleep medicine, you know, I always say like, well, what the body likes, the body might not, might not love the drug, but what it likes less is change. So we're going to work with the prescribing doctor. We're going to, first, we're going to start building up all the natural medicine approaches that can help. And then in conversation with your provider, we're going to slowly, slowly, slowly reduce by fractions over the course of many months. And again, some people are able to get off medications like those. Some people can't, but they can get down to a point where they're just taking a quarter of what they used to take. So again, side effects would be commensurately less. So those are the main issues and main topics that I address with people in general related to prevention. Um, all of that is absolutely incredible. I feel like 
yeah, you don't really need to wait to go and see a, like a naturopathic doctor. You like, do you have a lot of people that just come to you before there's any symptoms to fit, to talk about preventative care? Um, yeah. I mean, I would say that even though I've been in practice for 36 years, the, the, the groups of people that come to see us, the types of people, and I think my husband would agree, they fall into three categories. You have the first category, which are folks who they're living a natural-ish lifestyle and they want their medicine to match that. They're, they have a posture sort of against pharmaceuticals. They are eating a healthy diet. They're doing what they can on stress management, et cetera. And they may or may not have a current illness that they are worried about. Although most people do come in with a little something, you know, maybe nothing terrible, have a little bit of eczema or a little bit feel a little hormonal before their period like that. In that category, I would also put people who they are healthy and they're living a healthy lifestyle, but they've got bad genes, quote unquote, bad genes. In other words, you know, all the women in their family get dementia or everybody by the time they're 60 has to have a hip replaced. And so they know it's sort of coming down the pike, honestly, due to their genetic inheritance. So people like that, we can really be proactive. And it may be that we can't totally stave off the inevitable, but we can put it off by this many years or this kind of severity. So there's that kind of person. Then we have people who come into us who are, um, have, have not found help or enough help from conventional medicine. It could be from a very well understood pathology that the medications either don't work, don't work well enough, or they don't tolerate them well. Or increasingly it's people who come in where all the lab work is normal, all the physical exam is normal, the screening radiology reports are normal and they don't feel well. They're either uh, very sore and achy, they have chronic headache, they have problems with digestion, you know, everything's normal. And so what happens to that group of people is they generally get put on antidepressants. You know, it must be in your head kind of thing. It's very patronizing. And people, a lot of people coming to me, they, they have the prescription. I'm not going to fill that. I mean, it's depressing that I feel this way, but I'm not depressed, you know? So that's sort of the second category. And the third category, I would just say people who are desperate and they have not, uh, they, they don't even know what we do. They don't totally appreciate the training, education, philosophy of naturopathic medicine, but they have a friend or a cousin or a neighbor whose kid used to have asthma and their kid has asthma. Just do whatever you did to that kid, to my kid. Uh, mm. Which is kind of funny because one of the other philosophical tenets that I didn't mention earlier is the whole idea of individualizing treatment for the person in front of you. So if I have 10 kids with an earache, I'm not going to give them all the same antibiotic. They're going to get a different treatment plan based on how they are experiencing their earache and what I know about them in the context of the whole kid, behavior, sleep, digestion, et cetera. So being able to individualize care, and this is something that I bring up over and again in my book, I do give general information, but I shy away from giving very specific like amounts of a particular supplement or this many milligrams of salt for this kind of thing, or this many glasses of water for that matter. We just basically want to emphasize that we all have individual biochemistry that will react differently to whatever changes we make, additions we try, uh, approaches we employ. And so I, I, I love that part of my medicine because it keeps it from being boring, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just, it's better medicine. And, you know, and conventional medicine, particularly in cancer care is moving in this direction to give specific immune therapies that are based on that individual's immune system blood work and things like that. So I think we are moving in this direction slowly. 
Okay. Before we get into your cancer journey, I just want to touch on like, what are some of the most, um, incredible transformations that you've seen through your practice when somebody comes in, um, however they come in. And then after your kind of journey with them and their willingness to jump on board and make some changes, what are some of the the most incredible things that you've seen come from? Yeah, I can give you, um, Let's see, I'll I'll talk about two different patients of mine that I think exemplify a lot of naturopathic medicine, the promise of naturopathic medicine. One was a a gentleman in his forties. He had been on four to five rounds of antibiotics every year since he was about 12. So so he had literally had hundreds of rounds of antibiotics. It was terrible for sinusitis. He struggled with very bad sinusitis. He had had several surgeries to help you know, clean them out and, and ream them out. And they kept coming back and they kept coming back. And he was very, very motivated. He had, didn't know much about what we, what we do, but he had a dear friend who was a physical therapist who had been a student of ours for many years. And she sent him to us. So the first thing that we talked about was the microbiome. And we have the microbiome in the, in the abdominal area, as I discussed, but each area of the body also has its own microbiome. So the whole sinuses have a microbiome, the eyes have a microbiome, the vaginal area, et cetera. So um, we got to work on his diet. He was eating a standard American diet, uh, a lot of fast food, every day for lunch, fast food, addicted to dairy. He was having a big glass of milk a couple of times a day, yogurt, cheese, cottage cheese. He loved it all. Um, and he had a, um, he had a real sweet tooth. So he kept in his pocket, like in the first visit, he opened his pocket and he had a couple of Kit Kat bars in his pocket. I was like, Whoa, that's pretty bad. <laughs> they are delicious. I've had them in the past. Um, so we, we really worked on his diet for the first couple of months and he had to be on one more round of antibiotics while I was working with him. But then after that, we, I used a number of natural medicine approaches that are known to enhance quality and the caliber of the mucous membrane tissue of the nose and the sinuses, as well as approaches that decrease inflammation. And he had an everyday list of a a small handful of supplements that he took. And then he had another list of things that he would take if he started to feel symptoms, including some botanical medicines, a homeopathic remedy specific for him, and a number of nutritional supplements known to help support immune function like zinc, beta carotene, vitamin C, and he has, it's, it's been probably 18 or 20 years since I, I see him periodically. He comes in with, brings his elderly mom in. He has never been on an antibiotic again. And, you know, a story like that, you just think, goodness gracious, I wish I had seen him 30 years before. Yes. Yeah. You know? I have another gal who I saw who's a cancer survivor, breast cancer survivor, who was riddled with incapacitating anxiety. And I would say she had that before her cancer diagnosis and the cancer diagnosis, all her worst fears came true. She thankfully had very early cancer, did not have to have excessive treatment, but her anxiety level was through the roof. It made her so she couldn't care for her young daughter. She couldn't work. She basically had to spend her day (laughs) sitting in the corner, doing breathing exercises, addicted to Ativan, uh, anti-anxiety medication. And she was really kind of paralyzed by her anxiety. So, and she came from a long line of anxious people. Both parents were anxious, the grandparents, you know, she came to it honestly. And she also had an anxiety producing life. The husband wasn't that supportive, et cetera, et cetera. So the first thing we did was we, we did the deep dive on what is the role of exercise and anxiety. You know, it is the number one treatment for the prevention and treatment of anxiety. It's number one, second to none. So I got her to commit 
to more exercise. And the thing that really appealed to her was using a rebounder, a little trampoline. She would, she just, that worked for her. So I said, okay, how many bounces can you get? And how many more are you going to get? And when else are you going to do it during the day? We did that. I turned her on to um, a, it was an eight week mindfulness meditation course that I encouraged her to do. And she finished it and she completed it. And she learned a lot of skills and a lot of approaches. She also started up treatment with a colleague of mine who does some body-centered psychotherapy. She'd had some trauma in her history. So we did things that I didn't do them myself. It's not in my wheelhouse, but I referred to people whose work I admire to really try to unwind some of that trauma for her. And then we used some of the natural medicine um, approaches related to certain amino acids, theanine, we use melatonin to help with sleep. We used GABA to help with mood stabilization. And we got her off of refined sugars just because they're irritating in general and they don't help with anything, including anxiety and depression. So she came back at the first visit and I knew she was better right away. I didn't, I didn't, she didn't have to say anything, just sitting in, in the waiting room. She was just at ease versus when I'd first gone out to see her, she was all you know, cranked up and sort of pacing and her eyes were darting around. I mean, like she just, she exuded anxiety. So, you know, just an, a, a beautiful example of gentle natural medicines being effective over time. You know, it took several months. It was not overnight. Does she occasionally reach for the Ativan? Yes, if she flies, that's something that she will use when, when she's flying, very afraid of flying. But, you know, other than that, she's really off medication and enjoying her life much more. And not spending so much time in that worried lane where it takes, you know, you can't, she's basically was always focused on the past or fretting about the future. And she could never really be in this one moment, which is the only one we really have any control over. So she really uh, embraced a lot of these approaches and it continues to do well many years out. Oh my gosh. Like how beautiful is that? Like having another lease on life, like being in that in that spot, just paralyzing spot to then being able to enjoy your present life. Um, okay. Now I want to go into your cancer journey. First question is you said sometimes genetics plays into it. Was that something that played into yours or was it other factors? Yes. Yes, Okay. Yes. Very much. So I, uh, I come from a long line of people that have died from cancer. I was tested in my forties for the BRCA mutation, which is a common breast and ovarian cancer gene. And I tested negative. Um, Fast forward a few years at the age of 54, I found a lump in my breast um, during a time when it was actually New Year's day. And the night before my husband and I are big ballroom dancers. We've been out till four in the morning, top of my game, dance every dance, happy, happy. Um, And when I found the lump, I was like, oh, this can't be good because I'd had mammograms from an earlier age than most women because of my family history. And I did not have fibrocystic breasts and I never had a you know, call back on a mammogram. I was diagnosed with early breast cancer and I went through that treatment. I, they, you know, I opted to have both breasts removed because I saw one of my sisters that had breast cancer numerous times. And I just didn't want to go through it again. She had also tested negative. And the doctor was like, well, you shouldn't even get tested because she had disease and she was negative. I was like, you know what? just take them both because I, she's, we, we might not have that, but we have something and I don't want to be going through this again. And I had four rounds of chemo and I had radiation to my chest wall. Uh, and then if you have the BRCA mutation, the typical thing to do is to wait a while and you know, recover from that and then have your ovaries removed. 
Well, I didn't want to wait very long, you know, so I basically said to them, as soon as my blood counts are back to normal, let's, let's take out the ovaries. It had been such a crappy year, you know, I didn't want to bring it into the next year. And they found cancer on both ovaries. So either the breast cancer sort of saved my life because it was very early ovarian cancer, which I'm, for which I'm very thankful. But I did have 12 more rounds of chemo at that point, which is a lot of chemo in one year. Mm-hmm. That was how genetics played a role for me. And I just do say to people, if you were tested before 2010, that it's, and that's a long time ago now, but if that was your story, you might consider being tested again because the test has gotten better. That's what happened. My genes didn't change. They don't change, but the test got better. And at that point, um, that was discovered. Okay. So then you said, so you have been on in this career of naturopathic medicine, but you also say, you know, both depending on the situation. So you did get conventional treatment and you also had your naturopathic team by your side as you went through. I did. I did. I had, I had tremendous in-house help with my husband, who is a sort of a, a one-man research phenom who was really at my side for both technical help, but also emotional support, of course, and taking care of the house and the business and the kids and all of that. Although my kids by that time were all out of the home in college or, or just after. Um, but what one thing that if people are interested, throughout my treatment, I blogged for the Huffington Post, and I basically was trying to share information about how natural naturopathic medicine or integrative oncology provided by other kinds of licensed providers can work, can can be used and work with you during conventional care to help optimize conventional care. You can do things that make cancer cells more chemosensitive or more radiosensitive. And so I wrote about this extensively related to chemotherapy, related to radiation, related to the head game, um, and, and a few other things. You can find that online. If you type in my name, Amy Rothenberg, Huffington Post cancer, you will find there's probably at least seven or eight articles on that topic. And, and, you know, it's not enough to get you to learn all the details, but it is enough to inspire you to pick up the phone and call somebody who can help you during the time you're going through care. No one needs to go alone. And, you know, you, if you can help to enhance efficacy, that's good. But the other branch there is helping to prevent side effects. A lot of the side effects of cancer care, cancer care is harsh in many ways, less harsh than it used to be. They're getting much better at understanding dosing and you know what's, what's the least amount we can give to have a positive effect, as opposed to what's the most amount we can give without killing the person. It's a, it's a different perspective. Um, but nonetheless, many people have side effects from low blood count to lymphedema, to peripheral neuropathy, to fatigue, to depression, the list goes on during care. There are many things that can be done, stomach ulcers, uh, mouth ulcers, et cetera, et cetera, to help prevent that. And then if side effects do arise, there are natural things you can do to help address those symptoms. And then we all during care, there's also so much we can work with, with lifestyle and lifestyle medicine to help support the mood the spirit, the desire to live, the energy level, some of these more basic things ensure adequate sleep. So, you know, during care, I think it's super helpful to have somebody who has this kind of training nearby. Mm-hmm. And then afterward, and this is, is the topic of my book, is what, do we, what can we do afterward to help mop up from conventional care, so to speak? And then what can we do to shift the internal environment to be less susceptible to the development of further cancer? How can we prevent recurrence or, or new uh, primary cancers? 
Okay. Two things I want to get into your book, but before that, maybe you won't be able to answer this question, but do you think that in the future there'll be, um, that we'll be able to use just naturopathic treatment to fight cancer? Or do you think that it's going to be probably, you know, the, the conventional and then the naturopathic to, to help with the symptoms? Do you think we'll ever get to a point where it'll be? Well, I'm a, I'm a very optimistic person. I would, I would never say never. I think it depends on the type of cancer, the person's genetics, other lifestyle factors. At this point in time, it's important to underscore that many cancers, particularly when caught early, are very treatable and people will die from something else. So we don't want to throw the baby with the bathwater, even though it can be harsh. Um, yeah. that, that's what I would say there. And you know, there are certain kinds of cancers that have been sort of downgraded. DCIS, for instance, you know, well, is it cancer? Isn't it cancer? Things like that. People, there are people who will promote not aggressively treating. A big study came out earlier uh, this summer about how there are now genetic tests that can be done on women that have, and men can also get breast cancer, of course, early breast cancer to determine whether or not they should take chemotherapy or whether or not they should have radiation. So, and that's been around for a while, the, the testing, but it's gotten even better. And there are some people now who are having a lumpectomy or whatever is indicated in that situation and not, not being recommended for chemotherapy. Now, if I was that person, would I want to jump on the natural stuff super quick? You bet. Um, it, the thing about natural medicine for the most part, you can find exceptions to every rule. You know, there's, there's not a big side effect profile. Mm -hmm. don't want people, people do need to be aware certain supplements, like don't mix well, don't play well in the sandbox. So for instance, if somebody's on a blood thinner because they had a stroke or they had something else that for which they are on a blood thinner, atrial fibrillation, something like that, they are not a great candidate for, for lots of fish oil, bromelain, curcumin, all supplements that are mildly blood thinning. Okay. Some would be okay. But so that's where you really want to be working with a knowledgeable person uh, so that you're not putting yourself at risk. Yes. Okay. Now let's get right into this book because I feel like there are so many people who are on the other side. So yours is, you know, now what, like a field guide for, for people who had cancer now, what, because like you said that the chemotherapy and, and the radiation, some of the harsh, um, treatments that we people go through, they leave, you know, there's lingering effects that they have on the body. And like, you've talked about that's so important. The microbiome is like, doesn't that get like shot really when you take antibiotics, do treatments like this. So for people who are, I mean, if you're listening, you probably know someone that has had cancer, maybe in your family, maybe not somebody that, you know, has been affected by it. So you have this book to help people as they are finishing treatment now, what? So let's talk about that. You bet, you bet. Some years after my treatment was over in 2015, I just became very interested in this. I, I, I knew what I needed to do to re recover and regain my, my vitality. Um, during my last chemo, I said to my husband, okay, in six months, I, I want to do my first triathlon. So I, cause I knew I needed to give a little uptick in my exercise. I was always an avid exercise, but I wanted to do even more. So I set a goal for myself and, you know, and I, and I have to say 
compared to many people who went through things similar to me, I, I feel excellent. You know, I, 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 I don't drink myself, not knock wood here, but I feel excellent. My mind is clear. My heart is open. Physically, I'm not suffering, you know, in any way. So is that going to be the case for every cancer survivor? Probably not. A lot of people went into cancer, not very healthy. So, you know, you can, you can kind of do the math, but there are things that people can do to take back some of the power and self-agency through the choices and decisions they make in their lifestyle, in their diet, in their exercise, in their stress management, et cetera, et cetera, that can impact both their quality of life, but also their health outcomes. That's important here. There's, and in my book, there are over, I think I I've tapped out about 600, I'm sorry, 360 references in my book. So whenever I say something, make a claim about something, I give you the reference to the study that was done that helps support that recommendation. And I basically broke it down into the areas that I felt were most important. The first one was basically how to talk so your oncologist listens and listen so your oncologist talks because an informed patient is the best kind of patient. And the person who feels like they have their own personal island of, of power and self-control and can arrive with their questions, bring a person with you to help, you know, in case you're anxious, nervous, et cetera. So I have lots of tips about how to show up with your doctors and all of that. And then I launch into exercise, which I will always say is the number, if you can only change one thing, it should be more exercise. Um, diet and nutrition, also information about attaining and maintaining optimal weight, because we know that those people who are overweight are more at risk for certain cancers and more at risk for certain recurrences. Um, and then I have a chapter in the book on botanical medicine and the use of plants. Um, I have another chapter on whole person medicines like homeopathy, acupuncture, Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, I have a chapter that is related to hands-on medicine and that kind of hands-on work that can be so helpful. Another whole area is around the head game. Uh, then there's another area about environmental toxins and supporting those emunctories that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and then I have a whole chapter called uh, caretakers as survivors. Uh, because caretakers and, and many people who have cancer have also been caretakers or needed caretaking and just some thoughts around that. And then I end the book on topics, thoughts for the future and, and the sort of promise of natural medicine. But my goal, my overarching goal, those are sort of the details, is basically to empower people with information and inspire people to want to make actionable changes that can impact their quality of life and their health outcomes. Wow. This week, I just recorded the audiobook, which will be available on Amazon and Audible. And I'm very excited about that because I got to read the whole book in one, in, you know, in, in a couple, but in sort of one whole uh, bite, if you will. And I think it holds together very well. And you could read this book and you could learn things that can help you or your loved one actually feel better. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention, hopefully, rec preventing recurrence. So would you say this book is also for someone maybe who hasn't, you know, isn't on the other side of treatment, but to be informed if there's somebody in their life that. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You bet. And I mean, as everything that we've just talked about, it's like, I re-listened to all of my episodes, but really, really thinking about what you say and how we can be preventative so that we, our body isn't susceptible to, to all of the, the other things. So 
Is there anything remember that like everybody has cancer cells floating around, right? Mm -hmm. And your immune system is so brilliant. It's it's like an incredible orchestra. It just knows exactly what to do. It can respond to previous insults. It can remember things from the past. And we just need to do things to keep our immune system functioning as as best as possible. So, uh, uh, you know, tending to the microbiome and not eating a lot of sugar and not being so stressed out. There's a whole world of psycho neuroimmunology where your mind affects your nervous system and your nervous system affects your immune system and around and around we go. So yeah, I think, you know, we all have power to feel better and to make choices along the way of each day that can improve our our health. And I will also say that we are all going to die. You know, like one thing I often say to my students, like every single patient you treat is going to die. I mean, you know, eventually it's part of the contract of being alive. So we have to make the best of each day. And I'm not saying that the things in this book are a miracle work. I'm not saying every single survivor will never get a recurrence. That's not possible to ever say, but I do think we can stack the deck in our favor. Mm-hmm. And that also it's important to know you're not alone. I mean, there are, the American Cancer Society changed their incidence of cancer. They used to say it was one in four Americans. Now it's down to one in three are going to have some kind of cancer. This is America, not Canada, some kind of cancer in their, in their lifetime. A lot of it's skin cancer. That can also be bad. Um, so that, that's a big number. That's mm-hmm. a big number. So taking back the reins a little bit and remembering that we have some control over how we use and treat and care for our, our body, mind, and soul. I love that. And I love how you, um, talked about, you know, it's, it's a process. It's a journey to, you can start small by adding in the salad. You can start small by adding in a thousand more steps into your day. So that, that, that it is doable, right? It's not this, you know, 180. It's just the small changes make a difference. And like you said, we're we're all going to die, but wouldn't it be amazing if we just felt really good in our day to day and really enjoyed the time that we had. So I love that you offer that in your book and in this conversation and and all that you do before we sign off. Is there any question that I didn't ask Um, anything that's Uh, on your mind that you really are like, okay, this is something that is, I just need to share. Yeah. I think the main thing is to uh, encourage people to be very direct with the people that they love and to really let them know it in actions, in words, in touch, in, in whatever ways we're living in a, a very challenging time. We have a long way to go on so many issues that are troubling in our society. And so leaning into those we love and also being kind to strangers. You never know what somebody else is going through at any given time. So being kind to people that you come across because people are pretty stressed out right now. They really are. Um, and then I would also just love to say that you can find information about the book on my website. Uh, which is dramyrothenberg.com. It's D-R-A-M-Y, my last name, rothenberg.com. Um, it will be available wherever books are sold. You can ask a library or a bookseller to find the book for you. Uh, it'll be in softcover, hardcover, ebook, and audio. And the book release date is September 26th. But if you go on my website and you sign, there are places you can sign up there, you'll get information about pre-ordering the book. And we would love to share this information that's in the book as widely as possible, because we think it will really help people. Yay. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited for, 
for this book and for the world to get their hands on this. Cause I think it's going to be such a valuable, you know, wealth of knowledge and hope and inspiration and, you know, means yeah. so many things to so many different people. So I'm so excited that this book is coming thank out you. and yeah, thank we'll you absolutely thank link you so much. Thank yes. You. Thank, thank you. you. We'll link all that in the show notes. So wonderful to talk to you. I think it's um, just incredible. I can just feel and see, you know, when there's just people that are just so dropped in doing what they love, sharing their passion, it really makes such a difference. And the ripple effect that it has is just, you know, you can't even, you won't even see the ripple effect, but it's just so huge and so far spread. So thank you for sharing sharing this you time bet. and thank you so much for having me and and um i look forward to connecting again sometime soon yes thank you thank you for joining me on today's episode of all things relatable if you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it please pass it along also if this episode resonated with you i would love for you to rate review and subscribe